Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, we were just talking before this podcast about the George Michael video mm-hmm. for Freedom. It's good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Freedom. Freedom. freedom you got I don't, I don't Yeah, I don't have yeah. I just I remember seeing it on TV back in uh, the, the old days when, you know, I had nothing better to do than to watch lots and lots of MTV. I think it's vintage 90s. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was definitely vintage '90s. That would have been about the right time frame. But it was, uh, as I remember, a pretty s- sexy video, and there are all sorts of sexy things going on in it. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and at one point, George Michael uh, writes a word on the back of his wife's or girlfriend's back, right? Yeah, actually, his then girlfriend's back, and the message is monogamy. And it's interesting because, as you say, it's a very sexy video, and there are a lot of people who are. Um, Seem to be expressing their sexual liberation, right? Which, uh, which, in a sense, George Michael would do later uh, for real. In a different context, yeah, yeah, uh, not not a, a boudoir, but at least to the American public, it would be in a stall, which is fine. Whatever. The point is, is that the video is interesting because it seems to be about sexual liberation, and yet they bring up the point of monogamy. Right. Yeah. And what is the relationship actually between these two things? Not that we're saying that a, a George Michael video from the early 90s has to really have a compact, solid message yeah. about uh, the way the world works. But it's fascinating in light of this podcast where we are discussing the topic of monogamy. Yeah, which we actually decided that we would dedicate a whole podcast to because we recently recorded um, a podcast about same-sex pairings in the animal world. Yeah, or gay animals, if you read, if you will. Gay animals, right? Which, which again carries a lot of uh, uh, you know anthropomorphic baggage with it. Yeah, and and it was interesting because we we uh, were talking about the lazen albatrosses in Oahu. Hawaii and 33% of that population is actually same-sex female-female pairings. And some of these albatrosses or these birds have been together uh, since they started studying them 19 years previous to that. Mm-hmm. So it could have been that these birds were together for um, much longer than that. But the point is, is that monogamy seems to be in nature. It seems to be in different species and humans really try hard, I think, to be monogamous. Well, some try harder than others. This is true. Um, but we're not always very successful. So we want to talk about that today. Right. So animals. Let me just run through a few uh, favorite examples of monogamous uh, creatures. You have gibbon apes. You have wolves, termites, coyotes, barna owls, beavers, bald eagles, golden eagles, condors, swans, brolga cranes. Brolga cranes. Mm-hmm, uh, sandhill cranes, pigeons. Red-tailed hawks, black vultures, and, and apparently 3% of the 4,000 mammal species are monogamous. Of course, homo sapiens aren't on that list, uh, but we'll discuss that a little <laughs> more as we go. Some of the examples that I, uh, I came across in the research were, were pretty, uh, pretty interesting. The black vultures, for instance, discourage uh, infidelity. All nearby vultures attack any vulture caught philandering. So mm-hmm. that was interesting. Uh, for all their disgusting uh, corpse eating, they're... They're strict uh, moralist. For me, one of the most amazing examples of the um, the mate for life species is easily the anglerfish. To refresh, it's about the size of a teacup, deep okay. sea animal, frightening horror show jaws with big teeth, and um, a lighted lure that hangs in front of its face. It's one of those. It's like one of the favorite deep sea fish of all like 10-year-old boys. So um, it kind of has like a lantern? Yeah, it has like a little lantern in front of it, and the idea is it attracts uh, fish, and then it eats it with its frightening jaws. Mm. So... 
you have the female, right? And then you have the male who's kind of a little guy. And what he'll do is he'll come up and he'll, he will latch on to the back of the female. Okay. With its, with his sharp teeth. All right. And then he just keeps hanging on. Gradually, he grows into the female. Mm-hmm. Like physically, his skin grows into hers. They fuse together. He ends up getting his food through a common blood supply. His eyeballs atrophy. His uh, his organs waste away, uh-huh. and he eventually becomes a sperm producing organ. Like the only wow. thing that really stays intact are the testes. So he mates <laughs> for life, but it's it's really hard to it's because imagine he's fused. It's a, yeah, it's because he's fused to her physically, yeah. and they become a single organism basically. And uh, so I, you know, it's up 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 in the air whether that is a, a life worth living. Uh, or, uh, yeah, I mean, talk about loss of identity in yeah. a committed relationship. In a sense, it's like I like two reactions to it to really anthropomorphize it. It's like on one hand, the male anglerfish is kind of like the ultimate do-nothing husband. You know, we're always right. he's he's there. It's just his uh, he's just a pair of testes that's feeding <laughs> off of her. But then on the other hand, it's like a he's kind of put in his place. Like all right, like he's he may, he may not have any other purpose, so he's just reduced to. His, his one thing and just becomes basically an, an organ. I was going to say, he doesn't even, he can't even get away. Yeah. He can't even have some me time. <laughs> um, yeah, that's amazing. Well, this qu- isn't quite as dramatic, but I wanted to talk about prairie voles. Okay, because okay, these guys, uh, 90% of North American prairie voles spend their entire adult life with one partner. And researchers thought that was pretty interesting. They wanted to get in the mind, so to speak, of these prairie voles and try to figure out what made them so monogamous. And it turns out that the monogamous males have high levels of the hormone uh, vasopressin mm-hmm. in their brains, and promiscuous male voles have a low level of vasopressin in theirs. And so what they began to think is that, well, perhaps this is a good explanation, this high level of vasopressin in males. What about... Humans. And it can't, it's not really an apples to apples thing. Some people like to extrapolate and say, well, maybe that's the same thing with, with humans. Um, uh, and while voles are social creatures like humans, uh, they do have a very different brain from ours. That's pretty obvious. And in particular, prairie voles' brains are studded with receptors for vasopressin and oxytocin. And that's really what results in that high pair bonding instance. Um, so I think it's interesting. Again, I feel like people extrapolate those results sometimes and try to say that humans have the same situation going on since we also have vasopressin and oxytocin. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, it's hard to say. At least the jury is out. But the idea, is, especially with the voles, is it's this bonding that's taking place and it's resulting favorable chemicals in the brain. It's almost like a, a drug to them. Exactly. Yeah. That's the, the Their part of the reward center is um, going nuts every time they get a little oxytocin and vasopressin. So, yeah, that makes sense that they would want to stay in a, you know, for lack of other terms, a committed relationship mm-hmm. uh, because they're getting something out of it. And, in fact, if you look at that number, 90% of the North American voles are, are monogamous, then that bears out this whole idea that they're getting something out of it. Uh, but according to the Population Reference Bureau, the probability of an adult, a human, getting married um, and, and presumably being monogamous at some point during their life is still nearly 90%. But the problem here is that 50% of these marriages end in divorce. Okay. Which mm-hmm. points to this this whole idea that we 
really do want to be monogamous. Maybe there are benefits for us, which we'll discuss. But again, we're still not great at it. Well, this leads us to another animal, and that being the um, the gray lag goose. Yes. Yeah. Also, another highly social creature. Uh, researchers at Austria's Conrad Lorenz Research Station found that while some birds, some of these birds remained calm in flight, others were extremely stressed, and they mm-hmm. wanted to find out. And they implanted heart rate monitors in 25 of the geese. And they found that the geese, who were in monogamous relationships, I guess you could say, uh, had heart rates about 10% lower during flights uh, than the heart rates of single birds here. Right. And again, again, it's not apples to apples with humans. You yeah. can't say it works with these geese, so this must be uh, what's going on in humans. But it is interesting to look at that, that they're, they are less stressed out. They're, they're not, uh, you know, I mean... They know what they're doing that evening, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Pizza in a movie. But um, also, this is interesting. While resting, the female heart rates rose when their mates were more than a few feet away. Mm-hmm. And, but stress then was lowered when their mates returned. And uh, this is from Claudia Washer. She's an ethologist at Austria's uh, research station, the Austria Conrad Lorenz. She said, an increase in heart rate is an investment. You'll have more energy available. But if you don't do that, if you're in safe mode, you'll save more energy, which could have a long-term advantage for you. So okay. in the animal world, this makes sense. If you're pairing up, you're probably you know uh, safer, right? Mm-hmm. Safer in, in numbers. And you don't have to expend a lot of energy looking behind your back. Right. Well, you know, even on a you know on a human level, it's like people who are paired up; they can sort of uh, double team problems, right? Um, you know, they, and you can let your guard down a little, knowing the other person's looking out. Uh, I guess, though, I guess we t- we don't we tend not to sleep in shifts uh, in human relationships. You don't? No. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't either. <laughs> It would be weird. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of data out there that says that, that people who are in couples, men and women who are married, tend to live longer, especially men. And some of this, though, they'll point to the social network, the, so- the social support system that's in place that helps to reduce stress and helps to uh, bolster up your immune system, actually. Huh. So in humans, there are definitely reasons where you can see what this would be an advantage to become part of a monogamous pair. But then why stop there? Why marry one person? Why not marry several and then just reap the benefits? Oh, well, we'll talk about this right after this break. All right, we're back. And uh, we've been talking, I mean, the podcast is about monogamy. But in attempt to understand monogamy, we have to uh, discuss its opposite number, polygamy. That's right. And uh, more specifically, polygyny, which is different from polygamy in the sense uh, that polygyny is based on one male with several females, right? Um, Polyamory is a whole another thing here. Polyamory is many different uh, people participating in different configurations of relationships that are are actually usually monogamous. Uh, But just wanted to point that out, that we're talking more about polygyny here. Okay. In uh, a paper called The Puzzle of Monogamous Marriage, authors Joseph Henrich, Robert Boyd, and Peter J. Richardson said that they wanted to try to get to the bottom of why we are not uh, exclusively a polygynous society, mm-hmm. you know, in all cult- cultures across the world. And they say that the anthropological record indicates that historically, approximately 85% of human societies have permitted men to more than one wife. And both empirical and evolutionary considerations suggest that large absolute differences in wealth should favor more polygynous marriages. Yet, monogamous marriages 
have spread across Europe and more recently across the globe, even as absolute wealth differences have expanded. They wanted to know why, because it seems on paper like why wouldn't you just have a polygynous society, right? Right. Those were the stakes. Yeah, and why why doesn't someone like Donald Trump have just multiple multiple wives, right? I mean, at one time, as opposed to the series, right, right. It, yeah, and that's particularly the the case with powerful men, right? Because mm-hmm. the the more wives, more wealth uh, you amass, the more stature. Mm-hmm. And some people would say that uh, women would be attracted to that powerful man and, and would want to align in that configuration of polygynous marriage because you would reap the benefits of that. This is from Slate.com's Is Polygamy Really So Awful? Uh, women are usually thought of as the primary victims of polygynous marriages, uh, but as cultural anthropologist Joe Henrich, the guy we were just talking about, documents, the institution also causes problems for the young, low-status males denied wives by older, wealthy men who have hoarded all the women. And those young men create problems for everybody. So, yeah. Uh, so we're getting to the meat of it right here. Well, I, I can't help, but I'm sure a lot of people have already uh, are already thinking of the uh, HBO series Big Love, mm-hmm. which uh, dealt with this kind of uh, situation among uh, an offshoot of mainstream Mormons. A fictional group in this particular TV series. But you see that even in this, this show, which I found the first few seasons uh, rather enjoyable uh, from you know character development standpoint. But you would have like one individual, like the, the villain of the show has multiple wives of varying mm-hmm. ages. And then uh, at times the younger men are not, I mean, they end up having to leave because they, they don't have the opportunity to claim a wife. So you end up having like wife uh, monopolization by the uh, older members of a society. Exactly, yeah. right? There, There's a dearth of, of women available. And Henrich and Boyd and Richardson say that uh, when you have unmarried men and you have a scarcity of women, um, that is correlated with increased rates of rape, theft, murder, and substance abuse. Right. Well, because on one level, you're going to you're liable to uh, partake of more risky behavior because mm-hmm. you you don't have as much at stake. You know, you don't have this. this you don't have an investment in family. Right. You don't have an investment in family. You don't have investment in children. You probably don't have like a, a well decorated house or anything. You know, uh, you know, it's the the toilet is probably disgusting. Uh, all these things, and uh, and then suppose you are really. Uh, focused on climbing up the ladder, you're going to be more willing to take those risks to get the kind of financial footing that you would be required to claim one of these lovely ladies. That's right. You may steal, right, to try to accumulate wealth. Um, Also, they they said that uh, these guys would engage in crimes to not only just amass enough wealth to attract women, but also kidnap other men's wives, Hmm. which saying that here in the United States seems kind of crazy to say that out loud. Unless you're talking about Borat, but, um, you know, this yeah. is, is another instance why this doesn't really work uh, across the scales. Although uh, there are some instances uh, where a polygynous society could work. Uh, we know the of the Mosul community in China. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a matriarchal society. And that's one where I don't know if you would call it, we actually wouldn't even call it polygynous or polygamous, but in that society, women have decided that they won't pair with men. Uh, They will have sex with men or even relationships or or have a mate in a man, but that man does not live with them. Mm -hmm. Um, If they have children with that man, he does not raise them. In that society, men are more useful as uncles. Um, So the uncles actually help to raise the children and not the the actual um, father of those children. And it's a very peaceful society, and um, it's become a bit of a something for for tourists to to sort of 
oogle. But, oh, that's yeah. a shame. But speaking of the um, of the children, it's interesting some of these uh, studies we're looking at that dealt with the um, the effect on the children uh, in these uh, situations. Like they're yeah. m- more related to like the amount of attention they can get and how much uh, how much time is spent on the children in a, a polygynous family versus a monogamous family. Yeah, yeah, children uh, definitely suffer in this scenario. Henrich cites a study of 19th century Mormon households and 45 of them are headed by wealthy men generally with multiple wives, Mm -hmm. and 45 are headed by poorer men, generally with one wife. And what they found is that the children of the poorer men with one wife actually fared a lot better than the wealthy polygynous fathers. And the reason is that they think that those, even though they were wealthy and they had resources, they were still spread thin, the the, um, polygynous fathers, and they weren't able to invest that much time in their children. Right. I mean, if there's just the one, it's easy to say, yeah, I'll be at your karate practice. But (laughs) if there are like 14 of them, you you, you might not make a single karate practice. Right. And and it is so important in um, children's development, even with like their language skills, is Mm -hmm. to have that one-on-one time with their parents in order to get a hold on, on... you know, the building blocks of the world. So if you don't have that attachment to your parent, then it's possible that you would have some um, issues in, in actually developing. And what they found is that the poor kids actually live longer than the huh. wealthy kids. And then the other part of this, too, is that you have women kind of getting the short stick in polygynous marriages. Um, that would seem obvious, right? Right, because they're, they end up... They're sort of traded off at a very young age to older men. Right. They're, they're treated like a commodity uh, as opposed to an individual mm-hmm. in some of these cases. And, and I mean, and you can just easily imagine, like, it's going to be a rare 16 or even, like, 18-year-old that's going to really have the, uh, like, the, the assurance to really stand up, A, to uh, an older older man in mm-hmm. one of these uh, societies, but then and then B, to other women that are already a part of uh, that family. That's true. The That's absolutely wives, true. Right? One of the studies we were uh, looking at actually pointed out that, like in, in a in the particular study, there were there were no examples of uh, sister wives, for lack of a better word. The TLC show that you're referring to. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I think sister wife was the old is a term. term. Was, it was the old term. Okay. And, uh, but uh, um, but there were no examples of the sister wives all getting along well. Like like the the situation tended to breed a certain uh, amount of uh, contempt. Among the ladies. That's right. They they said Henrich said that in ethnographic surveys of 69 polygamous cultures, they reveal no case or no cases where co-wife relations could be described as harmonious. Which again would make sense because everybody's trying to vie for resources yeah. and time. Uh, so I you know I don't think everybody's sitting around combing each other's hair, um, and and singing kumbaya. Yeah, but then again, I mean I also can't help but. You know, having having not analyzed uh, that study in, in enormous detail, but you know what relationship is uh, could be described as one hundred percent harmonious. You know, so it's like are they well, applying okay. a separate standard to these uh, these these yeah. families than they, than they that they wouldn't be applying to a study of a monogamous uh, relationship? Well, see, and now and to go back to monogamous uh, relationships, particularly in the United States where the divorce rate is so high, there are a lot of psychologists that will point to this and say uh, the reason why we can't stay monogamous is because we have these ideals of what a relationship should be and mm-hmm. we can't necessarily suss out the reality versus the fantasy. Right. Um, and that's, of course, not part and parcel of, of every divorce that happens, but they say a lot of that is involved in, in why we decide to part ways. Right. That society says that we should be able to achieve this, 
but then our uh, our brains and our behavior patterns they all end up pointing in this uh, this rather different direction. Yeah. So I mean, part of it is you know just genetic, right? In terms mm-hmm. of what sort of directs our behavior. Yeah. Um, on an individual basis, I'm not saying wholesale males and females. And then part of it is cultural, what we believe we need for ourselves out of a relationship and what a relationship means to us. Yeah, I, I guess it, I guess the thing is, it just seems like it does seem like a no-brainer that while uh, like a relationship between two individuals is going to have a certain amount of complexity to it, mm-hmm. a certain uh, you know a certain amount of ins and outs, for every additional person added to that relationship. Even if they are, you know, in the the stat, they have the status of a sister wife as opposed to like a full pledged, you know, equal part of this uh, this this unit. Uh, it's just going to breed more and more complexity and more and more uh, feelings of, uh, of of distrust or you know, yeah, uh, etc. Which is probably why, if you if you look back um, at the human species, why we have been primarily monogamistic. Mm-hmm. It used to be that we thought that because we were trying to uh, spread our genes, um, and that men were certainly, uh, you know, going after more women to procreate with them in order mm-hmm. to do that. Um, that we really sprung from more of a, a polygenous society. But if you look at the stats, and this is really interesting, this is from a Live Science uh, article. It says that we've pretty much always skewed monogamous. Dr. Damian Laputa, an investor investigator at the St. Justine University Hospital Research Center, headed a team that analyzed genomic data from three population samples, uh, Africa, Asia, and Europe. And um, completely monogamy would yield a one-to-one breeding ratio, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the study found that the breeding ratio varied between 1.1 and 1.4 according to population. So 1.1 in Asia, 1.3 in Europe, and 1.4 in Africa. And those stats really don't point to an overtly polygamous um, society overall for the human species. Hmm. So to your point, less complexity is probably yeah. better, right? Yeah, at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that doesn't, you know, necessarily answer the question about why we can't always uh, stay monogamous or, or why some people can, um, but it's certainly a field that is ripe for more investigation. Well, let's look forward into the future. What does the future hold for monogamy? Okay. We've talked about in our 90, 999 Birthday Candles uh, podcast about the very real possibility that we might live to 500 years Right. The, the ripe old age of 500 years, maybe even a thousand years, depending on how well we can maintain ourselves, right, with the current technology and then the technology in the next 50 years, 100 years. Right. And if, and if two individuals can grow apart over the course of, say, a decade, then they're definitely, there's definitely a higher risk that they're going to grow apart uh, over the course of uh, like 500 years. Right. Uh, and this assuming that the you know there's enough neuroplasticity in play that one is changing and that these uh, 400 year old individuals are not just sort of neurologically mummified versions of their past self right you know but uh, but assuming you know life continues and people are, are pursuing interest and all then you could easily imagine that that from century to century or even from half century to half century you're growing into new people and then by necessity you're you're pairing up with new people it's, I mean, think about how much you change um, from age of 20 to 30. Mm-hmm. And then imagine that, you know, like you say, turning 500 and then, you know, 200 years later. Right. Uh, you're going to have a completely different perspective and probably you're going to have many 
different partners, right? So does monogamy exist in, in the future, I think, is what we're asking. Right. Um, and already, I mean, there have been people who say we should have marital term limits, um, you know, for us now, like 15, 20-year contracts uh, in which couples agree to invest time to sustain a family mm-hmm. and to be together. So the question is, what does that look like in the future? And, um, you know, what about reproduction? Um, because this is, this, a lot of this is predicated on reproduction, right? Like right. pairings get together because they're a lot stronger together to raise a family. This is the sort of evidence that we've been looking into in the animal world and, and, uh, with humans. And so, you know, a lot of people are saying that reproduction is going to start to happen in the labs much more so than it is today. Right. I mean, it's already becoming yeah, more of a situation where, I mean, reproductive choices such as artificial insemination, uh, the use of, uh, donor eggs, the use of surrogate mothers, and then, of course, widespread adoption. Uh, these are all examples of where the classic model, uh, I feel, of, uh, of the family unit and, uh, and of reproduction has uh, shifted somewhat. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it, you know, it's easy to imagine the future it will continue to, to shift. Well, and especially, I mean, we're talking about possibly having a uterine um, replicator. So right. you could actually gestate a child, again, in the lab. So to your point, how does that shift society if we no longer have to pair up in order to at least accomplish some of these mm-hmm. aspects of life. Yeah. I mean, society has always uh, changed with its technology, and it's going to continue uh, to, to do so even as the technology affects such uh, you know, such basic human activities as the spreading of one's genes. And as we discussed um, in the Ladies on Planet Earth uh, podcast, that we already see a trend in which women are choosing not to marry or marry later since they're better educated and they have better earnings. So just, you know, present day, you know, you wonder how much of um, monogamy is going to stay the same, at least as how we perceive monogamy. So do we end up becoming the anglerfish where ladies are <laughs> the man is just basically uh, reduced to uh, some testes in a tube somewhere? And uh, it's just a like a race of ferocious ladies with sharp teeth and glowing uh, things protruding from their forehead. I don't know. I don't know. That's kind of living in the deep ocean. I mean, I gotta say, that's that's awesome. <laughs> uh, I mean, I don't get me wrong. I love my husband. I don't necessarily want him to glom onto my back. <laughs> um, but that that makes for a nice little short story right there. Yes, the, the anglerfish, one of nature's nature's wonders. All right. Well, let's call over the robot. I have a uh, a couple of quick uh, messages here to read. All right. These are both uh, in response to our Hug It Out podcast. Uh, we heard from a listener Amanda. Amanda writes and says, "I'm a hugger!" Exclamation point. I grew up. I grew up in a family that did not hug. My sister, uh, that is 11 years older than me, cannot stand to be touched. So when I came around, I was a shocker to everyone. Me wanting hugs and touch so much got me the nickname. Klingon. Awesome. Well, that's, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting that Amanda sent that in because it reminds me of, actually, I received a text message from my sister related to this. And, uh, my sister Allie writes in and says, just listen to your podcast on hugging. I have a picture of the three of us here on my desk. She's referring to, um, herself, uh, me, and our sister Lucy, who my, uh, sister Allie sometimes calls, uh, loopers for some reason. She says, I have a picture of the three of us here on my desk. Uh, in it, you were giving me a side hug, which we refer to Mm -hmm. as the awkward hug that I learned from my mom. Uh, and, uh, he says, and Loopers is standing a foot away because she's a, she's not a hugger. So. Oh, what about Allie? I mean, does she Um, engage in like a hug hug? You know, I'm not sure. Um, she's definitely a hugger. Uh, definitely more so than, uh, than me or Lucy. 
Yeah. Okay. But so, so I guess oh, we kind interesting of run... that there's three levels of hugginess yeah, in your I family. I think so. I mean, and, and you can sort of, I guess you can, you might be able to make some argument about like birth order there because I'm the oldest and I'm just kind of an awkward hugger. Lucy is the middle child. Mm-hmm. She's not a hugger at all. Doesn't really like to be touched. And then Allie is certainly the, the, the more gregarious of the three of us, and she's uh, she seems like a like a definite. She's definitely more of a hugger. She's more apt to talk about her feelings and all. So. Yeah, but that might be genetic. I mean, she might be the double G variant that we were talking about, yeah. and so she's got the receptors for it. And she might be a hug junkie. She could be. She was also born in Canada. I don't know. Like she was she was <laughs> born. Well, that doesn't make sense at all, does it? The I don't know. Thing. We have to ask our Canadian listeners if they're all uh, there's something in the water of- well i know that generally the stereotype of, of the canadian is the, the canadian is more reserved like the yeah, like yeah. canadian hug is not a thing right I, I have not heard of i've heard of canadian bacon but not the canadian hug yeah i don't know well canadians can straighten me out on this or my sister can straighten me out if she hears this uh, and send me more texts about it but anyway so there you go there's some uh, some feedback on the hugs episode if you would like to share some feedback on hugs, on monogamy, on anglerfish and their strange ways, then you can find us on Twitter, where we are Blow the Mind. You can also find us on Facebook. Uh, just do a search in Facebook for Stuff to Blow Your Mind, and you will probably find us. And you can also send us an email at blowthemind at discovery.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Fork staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow.